0: series today called Heaven is Coming. And throughout this series, we're going to explore what heaven is going to be like. We're going to talk about how you get to heaven. We're going to talk about some fun questions like, are we going to eat? Are we going to sleep in heaven? You know, fun things like that. So, but one of the things that we're going to focus on that's of most importance is that I want to have this series create in us an appetite for heaven, a longing and a hope as we look ahead to heaven because you see I'm afraid we don't have a a very good understanding in the American church today. There are some concepts of what we think heaven is going to be like that might not be right when we look at the scriptures. So for example, some of us might picture heaven as a spiritual existence in the clouds. And you know, without realizing it, we might have uh, this image of a cloudy sort of spiritual disembodied life. And so what I did is I actually uh, Googled this. I just typed in heaven to Google images to see what would come up and take a look at what, I, uh, what are some of the, the top hits of what heaven is going to be like according to Google images. You see all the clouds, a stairway going up to like literally nowhere, like to a light. There is a, a sense of this cloudiness of a spiritual existence that is so ingrained in what our culture understands of heaven. Now, some of us think heaven is going to be like a never-ending church service, where we're just sitting in rows singing for ages and ages. Some of us think heaven is going to be boring. Some of us think heaven is going to be a fulfillment of all of our personal dreams and, and, and the things that we want. See, some of us struggle to find any hope, in this life, that this life had any meaning or purpose, and we have no future hope in understanding what heaven would be. So in Randy Alcorn's book, which many of you now have a copy of, he tells this story about the famous writer Mark Twain and how Mark Twain, when he got to the end of his life, how he processed what the meaning of his existence was. So I want you to see this. It'll be on the screen. This is what Mark Twain wrote when he processed the end of his life. He says the burden of pain, care, misery grows heavier year by year. At length, ambition is dead, pride is dead, vanity is dead, longing for release is in their place. It comes at last, the only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them and they vanish from a world where there's of they were of no consequence where they were achieved nothing where they were made they were a mistake and a failure and a foolishness do you hear the desperation the the despair in his voice in what he wrote about thinking about the meaning of life and what holds or, or what the future holds for him friends this should not be this should not be because life doesn't have to end in despair It doesn't have to end in hopelessness. See, we live a a life in a world that doesn't have to end. So I want to share with you over these next few months, the next two or three months here, the glory of what God is doing to renew and redeem his creation by the work of Jesus Christ. You see, heaven is primarily about God's glory. It's about his presence. It's about the work he's doing to make all things new. And you know what? I want our study of heaven to spark your imagination. To develop a hope and a longing. To to make you look forward to heaven because you can picture it. But I also want us to understand what it means to live in light of heaven today. Because life in our cursed world and in the decaying bodies that we have... Is difficult, but it's not hopeless. And I'm praying that your heart's going to be filled with joy today and throughout this series because we'll grow to love and look forward to what God has destined us for in his kingdom in heaven. So today we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 65 in order to get an introduction to heaven. So grab a Bible, open up to Isaiah Chapter 65, if you need a copy of the Bible today to follow along with us, raise your hand, because we've got copies in the back, and we can get someone to pass them around if you need to follow along with us. The text is not going to be on the screen, so you will need to have a copy in front of you to follow along with us. I really value having the actual text there in your hands. So Isaiah 65, it's right about there in the center of your Bible, if you're trying to find Isaiah. So, throughout this passage, what we're going to see from Isaiah is that he uses images and illustrations and metaphors of things that we know in order to help us to understand what is to come. He uses familiar concepts. He uses images that touch our hearts. He uses metaphors that leave an impression of heaven. And so, what he does, what Isaiah writes, is he tells us two things. And these are the two things we're going to see in this passage That God will make a new creation. That's in verses 17 to 19. And then God's gonna make a new city. That's verses 20 to 25. So we're gonna examine these two parts in order to understand what heaven's gonna be like as an introduction. So let's read the whole passage here together Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. And I'll read through verse 25. So hear these words See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child, and the one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord. They and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we examine these two parts of our passage today, I want to show you what Isaiah speaks about as he talks about God making a new creation. So we're going to look at verses 17 to 19 first, where God makes this promise of a new creation. So look back at verse 17. So if you have your text there, I want to point out a couple very important words. Verse 17 starts with these specific language. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. That verb there, to create, is exactly the same verb that was in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So here, this verb is only used in the Bible to talk about God's creative work. This specific verb is never used for a human being. It is only the work of God. And so by using this language, Isaiah is drawing our attention right back to Genesis 1.1. He says, God made everything in the material world. He made everything in the heavens above and the earth below. And you know what? God will create a new heaven and a new earth. That language is an act of God's recreation, his renewal. His transformation and redemption of the things that he made. And the beauty of the fact that Isaiah uses this word is it is only an act of God. That the new heavens and new earth, the redemption that is coming, is something that only God could do. Now, using the terms heavens and earth is a way of talking about a a totality of everything that exists by using a contrast. So in in the Hebrew language, they love to do this. They would use the heavens above and the earth below as as a figure of speech to talk about everything that exists. So I will create everything anew is what God says. Now, because it's a new heavens and a new earth, I want you to notice something very very important here. It is going to be a physical and material place. If it's going to be a new earth, it's a planet. That's a sphere that has matter. And so our, our recollection of the life That we're living now, uh, our our understanding of a material existence, heaven is going to have some continuity with that. Because it's important to understand that as human beings, we were never designed or created to be separate from our body and soul. Now there's a time, and we'll get into the theology of this, where before the resurrection, at the end of time, that there may be a, a, a... a time in the present heaven where we are are existing in our spirit with Jesus before we get our resurrection bodies, but we were not made to be separated spirit and body. Those things are intertwined and that's what it means to be human. We saw this with Jesus's incarnation for Jesus to be fully human. He needed to take on a material flesh because the essential uh, sort of essence of what it means to be human is to be body and soul wedded together. And so it's important to note that heaven is going to be a place that is material. Not material in the cursed material world we live in, but still material because that's the way God made us. So what we're going to see is that, we'll look at this in the coming weeks, we're going to look at the importance of the resurrection. The fact that Jesus is resurrected is of ultimate importance to the doctrine of salvation, but the fact that Jesus is resurrected as a first fruit of the resurrection to come, that we will have resurrection bodies is central to our understanding of heaven. Okay, let's keep moving a little bit here. That second part of verse 17 talks about the former things not being remembered, nor will they come to mind. Now, it's an exaggeration in the sense that the new heavens and new earth will be so radically different and transformed and renewed that we will not be distracted by looking back at what the previous life was like. It'll be like the life we're living now is a shadow. C.S. Lewis calls the life we live now the shadow lands in his book, The Last Battle in the Chronicles of Narnia. These are a time where we will look back and it will be like only a dream because that heaven will be so much more real than this life. And what's the result that's going to happen? Look at verse 18. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. Friends, the proper response to the fact that God is going to make a new heavens and new earth is rejoicing. It is gladness and rejoicing forever. It's an eternal thing. Heaven is eternal. and So that rejoicing will go on forever. And why is that? Because... It is what God made. Look at verse 18. You'll see two more instances of that exact same word, create. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. Again, that verb is only used for what God does. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight. It's God's work, and that's what the reason is to to rejoice forever because it's what God did. Now, what I want to ask, ask you as we look at this, Isaiah turns to use the idea of a city very early on in this passage. He says for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight. He actually talks about the new heavens and new earth in terms of the concepts of a city, the new Jerusalem. You see this in Revelation 21, 22. Now why would he talk about a city? So before we get to the second part of our passage starting in verse 20, we need to talk about why cities were important in the ancient world. There's something important about why the Bible talks about heaven as a new Jerusalem. It's described as a city. Okay, so what's the significance of a city in the ancient world? Cities provided safety and economic opportunity for people. Cities and and people were organized in what was more commonly known as city-states. It was a, an independent entity, a, a city that had its own government, its own protection. It, they sort of existed on their own. And so a city would provide a fortified wall on the outside. It would provide an economy for you to participate in. It would provide for you a family tree and an identity. You were called when you, uh, you'll see this all throughout the Old Testament. You'll see people being called as uh, Jebusites because they're from the city of Je- of Jebus. You'll have people being called by the city name because you gained your identity and your meaning from your city. That's what defined who you were. Cities provided you that safety, that safe place, that that place for your identity to be able to thrive as a person. We don't think of cities quite in that way. We're so mobile as modern people that we just bounce around from city to city. A city really defined who you were in the ancient world. Now, here's what's interesting. Cities first crop up in the Old Testament as a bad thing, and God then redeems it. So if you go all the way back into Genesis, after sin enters the world, and you go now to Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel, when Cain kills his brother Abel and is banished and cursed, the first thing that Cain does in Genesis chapter 4:17 is he builds a city. Because he's cast out from the security of the presence of God and from God's family line. And now he needs something to provide him the safety and the opportunity to live a life. And so he creates a city and he names it after his own son, Enoch. The next city that crops up in Genesis is the city, or you can use, we often use the term the Tower of Babel. It was a, a city that was organized with a, a tower that was reaching to heaven that was fortified and provide you to the safety that you needed. Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel story, is all about people who said, you know what, God, we don't need you. We can build our own safety and our own provision and our own way. You see, Isaiah talks a lot about cities in his, in his, in his book. And he uses a specific city to draw a metaphor that the that, that book of Revelation picks up on, which is the idea of Babylon. So in Isaiah's day, let's fast forward back to Isaiah. In Isaiah's day, Babylon was literally a nation that was coming in with their armies to, to, to attack God's people. But Isaiah latches on to this idea of a, uh, this nation that wants to destroy God and his people. And, and it becomes this metaphor to talk about uh, the nations of the world that are set against God. So it no longer necessarily becomes just Babylon in 700 BC. But Babylon becomes an image for all of history and how the nations are aspiring to destroy God and his people. But Isaiah not only talks about Babylon... As a rebellious nation that wants to destroy God, he talks about, by contrast, a city of Jerusalem. See, Isaiah talks about God's city, and so this is why he gets into this language. And I wanted to give you the background of it because when he uses this word Jerusalem in verse 18, it has so much meaning to it because God's city is a city of joy and provision That's Isaiah 25. It's a city of strength and salvation. That's Isaiah 26. It's a a picture of a a powerful, godly, good city, which is where God's people are designed to live in a society under God's rule and reign. You see, the idea of using a, a city as a concept helps us to see that we have to trust God for security and provision and identity and meaning. There's a a theologian, his name's Graham Goldsworthy. Just wonderful to tie themes together across the Bible. He puts God's whole salvation plan for history in this one sentence. So if you want to summarize what God is doing and what heaven means in that big picture, this is what he says. The whole plan for history is to secure God's people in God's place, living under God's rule, in God's way, in God's holy and loving presence. Okay, let me say that again. This is where history is going. That God is doing a work to secure God's people in God's place, living under God's rule, in God's way, in God's holy and loving presence. That's the path that is happening. And this is where heaven falls into this picture. So what exactly is this going to be like? Let me get into some more detail. So let's move on to that second part. Let's go to verses 20 to 25. Verses 20 to 25 get into the detail of what this new city, what heaven will be like. Let's read verse 20 again. Never again again will there be in it an infant who dies but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at 100 will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. So we, just to, to focus on that one verse, this verse is not meant to suggest that there's going to be death in heaven. Remember, Isaiah uses metaphors. He uses images. He's trying to help us to use things that we understand today to get an impression of heaven. So what is he trying to say? There's the, this image here puts on powerful display the fact that death in this life affects everyone. Everyone from the very oldest to the very youngest. You see, he uses this illustration of infants on one hand and adults on the other hand whose lives are cut short. And he uses it to describe the heartache and the pain that exists in the world that we live in now and how that will not be in heaven. Okay, my, I've had a few instances coming across the pain of this. My first year as an associate pastor... I was at a church out in California and, and on my, uh, my, my senior pastor at that church was on vacation during one summer. The second day he was on his vacation, we got a phone call in our office that a woman who was at our church, um, her sister was expecting a baby and they'd been visitors every now and again. She's in her ninth month and on this phone call, something I hoped I would never ever hear, the baby had been stillborn and they were at the hospital and they needed me to come. And I'll never forget visiting the hospital that day. To sit and just cry with someone who is in deep, deep pain. To feel what it feels like to say, you know what, this life, this is not the way it's supposed to be. See, this kind of loss and grief that we feel over tragic death really gets at the heart level issue here. That what Isaiah is communicating to us is that the tragedy of death, the tragedy of death over life, cutting life short, is something that will not be a part of heaven. You see, that kind of loss and grief is something we won't know. And this is why in that previous verse, verse 19, Isaiah says that there's going to be not the sound of weeping or crying anymore. Because we won't experience what this kind of tragedy is like. Maybe you've experienced something like that, or maybe you know someone who has. Friends, that feeling of this isn't the way it's supposed to be is something that God has put in you because you were not made for this cursed world, you were made for heaven. Let's look at verse 21 because Isaiah gets into some more detail about what heaven will be like. Verses 21 to 22 talk about these two, uh, two different metaphors, building houses and planting vineyards. Look at what it says. They will build houses and dwell in them, and they will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. See, these two illustrations talk about the home and they talk about our work. You see, a, a house, a home, is a place of security. And what Isaiah is communicating here is that heaven is going to be a place where we have the, if you will, the, the security of place. See, in America today, we're, we bounce around and move all the time. I've moved, I think, nine or ten times to different homes or apartments. Many of you have moved too, and you get the idea of what the upheaval feels like to uproot and go from place to place. What heaven is like is you will experience the security of place that you will never have to move again. (laughs) That home in the ancient world was so much tied to who you are and what your life meant. It was your lifeblood. It, it, it defined what you had. I think of, like, I think of the homesteaders and pioneers of, of America's past, where the land you were on was really the lifeblood of what you, how you survived. That identity of place is a part of what heaven will be like. Now, in the ancient world, 2,700 years ago, um, the idea of a secure place and a secure home was very Important Because people like the people Isaiah is writing to, they had nations that were warring and they were displaced from their homes and they were refugees and they had attacks on their cities. We in America have not had an attack on the soil of our own backyard. In the sense that Isaiah is writing to the people of God who are having Babylon knock on their doorstep. And you know what? When that invading army is knocking on your doorstep and somebody says, you know what? God's going to create a place where you will never be displaced again. That's beautiful. Now, work is another part of it. If you see in those verses, it talks about the labor of your hands. It actually talks about fruitfulness. It uses the idea of a vineyard. You see, planting a vineyard is an image for the fact that we are going to be fruitful in heaven. It gets to that Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 call of God on humanity to be fruitful and multiply. And so in heaven, we're not going to live in an existence where we don't have any work to do. I think we're actually going to have work to do, but it won't be cursed work anymore. It will be work that will be fruitful, and we will be content, and we will enjoy it. And it will be honoring to God in every way. So work matters, and work matters in heaven. Now, as we keep moving through this, I want to just focus in on one last thing here. That's a part of this passage. In verses 24 and 25, it talks about an absolutely radical transformation in terms of relationships. Verses 24 and 25 talk about our relationship with God, and then it talks about creation's relationship with each other. Look at what it says here in verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. This is God speaking. While they are still speaking, I will hear. There is a distinct sense of oneness with God that he is so close and so intimate in a relationship with us that he knows our needs before we even finish a sentence. See, the metaphor or image here conveys a closeness with God that we need to long for. Now, the next verse, verse 25, talks about a radical change in in creation. Look at verse 25, it says, The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the dust will be the serpent's food. I find this interesting, and this is just a metaphor, so don't get too hung up on the exact ecological details of this, but there will be some fundamental transformation in not only our relationship with God, but also in the ecology of God's material world. There will no longer be strife in the animal kingdom, just as much as there's no longer strife between us as people. So the wolf is just a metaphor here for animals of aggression. And a lamb is an animal of timidity and of, of fear and a, an animal that's, that needs to protect itself. And so these two very different creatures will sit down next to each other and will not be at odds anymore. This is the different ecology of heaven. You see, some things will change. Like, okay, imagine a lion not eating meat anymore. Now, it, it may or may not be that exact way, but what, what Isaiah is communicating here is a fundamental change in creation. That is the way God wants it to be, in harmony. Now, here's what I want to do to to kind of close our time. This is, again, an introduction to some of the things of heaven. We've seen that heaven's going to be a material place, transformation of relationships, transformation of what he made. I want to have us grapple this morning with three truths that we need to reflect on as we set our eyes to heaven. And I want this to guide us as we go through the next few weeks. So here's the first one, first truth we need to reflect on. Heaven is a gift. Friends, heaven is a gift. Earlier in Isaiah 65, if you were to read the entire chapter, the first 16 verses, it is very stark language of judgment and of salvation. And then there's a discussion of heaven because here's the reality is that Isaiah tells of the terrible results of sin that it will destroy you and unless God does something to save you you're doomed and so when he tells of the salvation that God offers he describes it as a gift That's the heart of the gospel. That's what we believe as a church is that God has has given us salvation as a free gift. And so immediately after a passage of judgment and sin and the offer of salvation, Isaiah talks about heaven. And why does he do that? Is a part of the gift of salvation. Heaven is a part of God's plan for his creation. Heaven fulfills in an ultimate sense all of the promises of the gospel. Because if you're saved by grace and made a child of God, God says, you're a child of God, you're a child of mine forever. And you're going to be with me. And all of this is for the glory of God. So we need to grapple with that over these next few weeks, that heaven is a gift. The second thing I want you to think about is that heaven is your home. Heaven is your home. Do you look forward to heaven this is where Peter, in First Peter calls us foreigners and exiles. That at the end of the day, this life is not what we're made for, that we're made for heaven. And so coming to realize the glory of heaven is starting to imagine what heaven would be like and letting that transform your heart. And so I'm praying for us as a church that we would gain a sense of joyful hope as we look ahead to heaven. Now, to, to, to contrast or to balance that, to, to give you another thought, the third truth I want you to think about is that heaven changes the way you live today. See, what does heaven, what does, what does it look like to live in a cursed world with a decaying body and yet long for heaven? What does faithfulness and obedience look like? As we await a new creation, a new heavens and new earth, here's one answer. It changes how we grieve. When I think about um, examining the life that we live now, I was talking with someone just before the service about this. When I think about what Isaiah says looking ahead to where there will be no more crying or weeping, where there will be no more death, no one uh, ill that gets cut short in life, I think of the experiences of what it was like to see my brother go through cancer treatments when I was 12 years old. To, To be going through an experience where you see so clearly the suffering that sin has brought on this world that we, we, we experience pain and we experience loss and the heartache that that causes. That, that when we see people, and, and my brother, by God's grace, survived, we all know people who have passed. And to grieve with a hopefulness is what it means to be a Christian. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, and many of you have heard this, says that we do not grieve like the rest of mankind does who have no hope. We still grieve, friends. But we grieve with a hopefulness that God will make all things new and remove the curse and resurrect us to be in his presence forever in a creation the way that he made it to be. So let's pray. Lord, we want to give you praise and glory this morning because of what you will do to create a new heavens and new earth. Change our hearts that we would go through our experiences even this week or this month or this next year with a different perspective. That God, we listen to what your scriptures say. That there is a promised heaven awaiting us. Not a disembodied cloud-like a never-ending church service existence, but something so rich where we get to live in a, on an earth that is made new and renewed and, and, and to work and labor for your glory and to be in your presence without any barrier that we don't have to live by faith, we live by sight because we are with you. Lord God, make us long for that and make it transform how we see the struggles and experiences and pain of this life. Teach us that today, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.